Hey everybody, Chris here with a surprise bonus episode. I hope you like it. We recorded it back in August and I wanted to put it out before our live show because it cuts to the heart of our big theme this season, how humans and nature shape each other. It's kind of the last piece of the puzzle. That season wrap-up show, How We Make Nature, is this Sunday, December 1st. It's at 2 p.m. at the Almanac. We have amazing speakers coming to share bite-sized stories about all the complicated, messy, beautiful ways we make nature where we live. And we are also going to be fundraising for the Resilience Institute, formerly the Rockies Institute. They do really boss work in climate adaptation in Alberta, especially with Indigenous groups. You can donate by cash or credit card at the door, if that's something you want to support. And we'll also be selling prints by Amanda Schutz of our majestic white-tailed prairie hair to fundraise for the Resilience Institute as well. Hope to see you there, December 1st, at the Almanac. Tickets on our website, letsfindoutpodcast.com. We'll record. Mountains ahead. Motorhomes also ahead. <laughs> now entering Jasper National Park. Dylan, you're not going to ruin my image of this place's beautiful, natural, pristine wilderness, are you? <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy's ultra guard mud flaps in front of us. <laughs> Careful avoiding the question. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Wiskaigan on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history and then we find out the answers together. Let's find out as a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. And this episode goes outside city limits to tell a story that really challenged my idea of what wild means, and maybe how we can redeem the word. So you may be wondering, who is Dylan Hall? Um, uh, Well, to me, you're like somebody whose work I really... Uh, admire uh, from CJSR on the environmental news show, Terra Informer. You're my mentor, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but you're my mentor, too, or one of them, because you wrote an essay for an environmental history class that blew my mind, and it was about parks and mountains. Is that why we're here? That's why we're here. That's why we're on this road trip. Cool, cool, cool. Chris has taught me so many things, too. Chris is my mentor, too. He can't get away with just that credit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it changed your life. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, it did because I, you've made me see Jasper, Banff, and some places in BC we're not going to talk about in (laughs) some really radically new ways. I just want listeners to know ahead of time that this is, this is not meant to be a downer episode. This is not meant to say the things that you like are bad. This is intended to help you see them in a, a, a brand new way. And I think that it will make it richer the next time that you go to a park. Hello. Are you folks visiting Jasper National Park today? We are. Just for the one day? Uh, Yeah. It's 1960, please. Okay, would you indulge me in a question? Yes. Is Jasper a wild place to you? Um, Well, it's definitely a lot more wild than Banff because we have a lot of bear encounters. Huh. Uh, so. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, sorry. I'm not quite sure how else to answer your question. So. That's okay. It's uh, a complex just, question. Uh, just stick that onto your windshield on the driver's side, please. Thank you. 
Okay, so this is a special episode of Let's Find Out, um, and uh, we're talking about the place that Edmontonians go when they need to experience a little wilderness, Jasper. And um, what's our mission today, Dylan? Well, we're going to try and find out if Jasper is a wild place. We're gonna try and find out what that means. We're gonna try and think about how Jasper came to be the way it is today. We're gonna look at some trees, like these ones on the left over here. We're seeing like mountains covered in trees. How could this not be natural? How could this not be wild? You can see a bit of the red from the pine beetle starting to come through but this is this is just like a beautiful little highway through a spot where you, you basically can't see any people this is this is wilderness right that's that's what wilderness is that's what I always thought when I was growing up this was always the place that I would come with my family to kind of get away from the city come experience Canadian wilderness me too my family always thought of it as better than Banff because it was it was quieter. This was like the Banff was the place where all the tourists went. Jasper was the place where like Albertans. Went. If you knew, if you had the in, you would come to Jasper. That's right. My family said pretty much the same thing. <laughs> uh, so what's our first stop inside the park to to figure out whether this is a wild place? Well. I think we'll probably go right up to the top of Old Fort Point to get a good view of the town of Jasper and the valleys around it. And really, I want to go and look at some old photographs that were taken from the top of Old Fort Point in 1915. Cool, cool. Let's do it. Alberta Podcast Network is powered by ATB, who have a pretty neat special branch for arts and culture. It's kind of a clubhouse, arts venue, and financial institution all rolled up in one, aimed at creative types and people doing cultural work in Alberta. I uh, don't know if you knew this, but uh, artists have some pretty unique financial needs, and ATB's branch for arts and culture is a place that understands the challenges that artists face, because the people that work at the branch are artists too. Members get access to industry-specific banking services and career development resources designed to help them do their best work. In Edmonton, they're at that fancy CKUA building downtown. In Calgary, they're on Stephen Avenue. Because these spaces aim to defy the expectations of what a financial institution should feel like. If you're looking for a comfortable, unintimidating, and creative financial experience, head to atb.com slash thebranch. Another Alberta Podcast Network show you should check out is Modern Manhood by Herman Vijegas. Just like us, he's really good at helping you see a familiar thing in a fresh light. Here's a taste. In the modern world, for men, modern society has created a reawakening of the question, what does it mean to be a man? It is not as clear-cut as it once was, and the answers are as varied, infinite, and complex as can be. This is where the podcast Mar Manhood comes in. Join me, Herman Vijegas, as we explore how the different views of masculinity shape our daily life. For example, how the way we date, parent, school, 
and play are affected by the many shapes modern masculinity has its handle on us. This is the lives of men, as flawed, authentic, and complex as can be. This is Modern Manhood, a proud podcast of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. So, uh, we're at the trailhead here for uh, Old Fort Point. Going to hike on up to the Old Fort Point. Should we look at the map first? Yeah, let's do it. Hike on up to the Old Fort Point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm really glad a six-year-old showed me that song. (laughs) You are here. Okay, we are right next to the Athabasca River, mm-hmm. a little bit south of Edith Annette and Beauvais Lake, just across the highway, the Yellowhead from Jasper. And we're going to hike on up to the Old Fort Point. <laughs> we started hiking up this kind of steep forested trail and pretty much immediately stopped because I saw some mushrooms. Whoa, there are like three different types of fungus in this one area. Holy crap, looks they're, so phallic. <laughs> there are at least five different types. So there's this straight up and down one. And then there's that round, plump, yellow one. Mm-hmm. Here, there's a brown, flat-topped one. Oh my gosh, and there's a cup fungus here. I think I inhaled some spores. Dylan knelt down in the moss to take a picture. Wow, look at okay, this one shot. There's going to be one, two, three, four, five, this little black one, (laughs) this little one, this little one. Whoa, I didn't even notice that one. Okay, my white whale fungus to see today, my white whale would be, if you see a white one that's oozing in little red spots, Okay. I want to see one of those again. Moby! (laughs) (laughs) And then this dense forest got Dylan thinking about trees. Forests, forest fire, forests are so tied into it. We're here to look at forests and think about fire. And forests are so incredibly important. But then there's also this sense of like we've been, or I've grown up thinking forest equals good. Hmm. And green is good. And if we're. I guess if someone has, like, even a vague sense of the extent of logging operations in the rainforest or in British Columbia, on the west coast, throughout the world, that might make sense to a level or to a degree. But are forests always good? Like, are having a huge amount of pine trees, spruce trees, and fir trees in the Athabasca Valley or the Bow Valley a good thing? Is it a natural thing? Does the type of tree matter? Does the type of tree matter? Does the reason for the tree being there matter? And what happens if humans are involved? Does that make it unnatural? Because then it really depends on what natural is. It really depends on what your idea of the ideal state of nature, I guess, is 
And that's a really difficult puzzle. Because not only is our view of the past cloudy, so is the shifting world of language, ideas of what ecology, environment, nature, what those are change over time. You're saying my great-grandparents' idea of nature isn't the same as mine? Probably not. Apparently, nature, when it first was used, probably longer ago than your great-grandparents, I think somewhere around the 14th century, um, it was like the nature of something. So, like the nature of those mushrooms is to grow when the time is right, when it's wet enough and warm enough. The nature of whatever it is you want to think about, the earth is to orbit the sun perhaps. It was a process. Wow. Whoa. Another mushroom, of course. That orange, bright... Oh my gosh, that's nearly a white whale moment. <laughs> Holy crap, that's like... Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, maybe like a Slurpee that's like orange crush flavored. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With a bit of slime. With a bit of slime. <laughs> Nature interrupted what you were saying. Nature interrupted. Oh, yeah, nature often does what we don't expect. Human and non-human. <laughs> Apparently, according to the scientists at least, this area was under a massive glacial sheet like 15, 16,000 years ago. Huh. And actually around the Rockies was one of the first places that melted. Oh, really? And so it was one of the first places that became habited with new life. And because there were already people living on Turtle Island, the people who were here, there's evidence of humans in the Rockies at about the same time, maybe like a thousand years, not even, from when the ice receded. So this landscape has basically been populated for its whole lifespan. By humans. So to think of like a non-human or pre-human nature here, since this last session of life being given its go, <laughs> um, yeah, there's always been humans. We got to the top of the hill, but couldn't figure out how close we were to the spot where the 1915 photos were taken. Dylan told me this is pretty typical. This summer he was working in Crow's Nest Pass, taking some of the repeat photos in the series. Another little ridge there. Mm -hmm. It might be possible that there weren't trees here too. And that when he was up on the ridge, he would have been able to see the town. Would you like me to explain what the Mount Legacy Project is? Yeah, who's he? What pictures are we here to take? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he is a surveyor. Um, Morrison Parsons Bridgeland 
and the Mountain Legacy Project is a project that started back in the late 1990s with a grad student who named Janine Rimtula and her, I guess, companion and professor who helped work with her, Eric Higgs, and they found this old box of photos and started to, they were like, wow, what is this? And realized that it was really systematic, like there were photos that had been taken of Jasper by these surveyors back in the early 1900s, and they'd actually been taken of the entirety of the Rocky Mountains, starting in the Banff area, right when the national parks were being created. And the Mountain Legacy Project is a project that repeats photographs taken by Dominion land surveyors that wanted to create topographic maps of the Rocky Mountains. And to do so, took systematic glass-plated photographs. What's the point? So that's a great question. Um, the work that I was doing in the Crowsmith Pass was largely looking into the effects of stripped coal mining there and change based on strip coal mining. But the initial project, which started here in Jasper actually, over 20 years ago now, in 1998, I think. Now it's 2019. Um, the initial point of the project was looking at change over time, trying to see what these valleys looked like in 1915 when the surveyors, when Bridgeland was taking the photos and to repeat the photos exactly. And that's what they've been doing for the last 20 years is repeating these photos as precisely as they can so that they can use computer tools to analyze them and look at the extent of change and also just to see the difference. So you've probably seen some of the photos of glaciers in um, on the Icefields Parkway, like the Columbia Glacier, the Athabasca Glacier, right. and how much they've receded right. over the years. So some of those initial photos were surveyors and the work the Mountain Legacy Project has done to repeat those has helped show the extent of change over the last hundred years in those glaciers. I think we're close. <laughs> A little cry laugh. <laughs> we were not close. We kept walking. We walked through some very dense brush. I got my legs all scraped up. We saw a covey of curious birds, ptarmigan, we figured, and then decided to rest once we got to a spot with a view. Wow, this wow. is a great lookout spot. Truly. Oh my gosh. I bet he was down there. <laughs> I think so? Probably, because that doesn't show up in the photo. We could just take them from here, but... Gosh darn. We could just take them from the Plus, top of this rock, because then we can see back this way. Yeah. From down there, we won't be able to see back. Also, I gotta have a bite to eat here. What's that? I gotta have a bite to eat here. Yeah, cool. We broke out the veggies and hummus, and then Dylan set up the camera. 
even if we couldn't find the exact spot, we figured at least we'll have a view of the Jasper town site and the whole valley around it. You know, the Athabasca River, the Jasper Park Lodge, Pyramid Mountain. Tripod? Tripod. Dylan's lighting up the camera. You can see the little bit of foreground there. It actually looks quite similar. Oh my gosh, wow, you can see the same ridge. We are on the same spot. We are exactly where we need to be. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it doesn't normally go like that. <laughs> oh, interesting. You can see the you can see a bridge in this photo, the Dominion Land Survey one. Cool. Hmm. Wow. So so the road, you can see like all of the road because there's no trees. In the 1915 photo? In the 1915 photo. There's a few little ones there around the bridge, scattered. And today a ton of the road is blocked by trees. This is the weird thing. There are way more trees in the valley today than in 1915. So in this photo too, there are a lot more open plain areas where today you look and it's mostly trees mm -hmm. with just the town pretty much and like when I came here a couple years ago and saw the start and some of the extent of the pine beetle I remember thinking wow this looks horrible something's wrong something's going on this isn't natural because my sense of what was natural was this place full of green living trees and I feel like a lot of people probably feel that way or have that experience. Um, so I was so shocked when I saw those 1915 photos that showed all of this as plains and mixed kind of wetland, scrubland. That's not what I expected at all. That wasn't my normal. That's not what I'd been born into. Not what I had come to expect, but I'm 24 five in a week <laughs> so there's not a lot of time for a place to change and 1915 like just over a hundred years ago all of this was grassland and had just so many less trees so this is so wild to think about because like to me when i think of what a national park is for or what its goal is I used to think of it as like, it is an active set of choices to preserve a landscape the way it was when the park was made. Mm. And if that's the case, this landscape looks very different. Absolutely. And this, like parks weren't created for that reason in many ways. And that's probably part of the reason that this isn't the way it was when the park was created parks were created for in in some ways to create a forest reserve for the federal government as a place that they could harvest timber and make money so they banned burning and they the first wardens like one of the main things that they would do was look for either lightning fires or human fires and put them out and they did in some ways a remarkable job of of stopping fire from existing in in the valley and they also stopped fire because it wasn't just campers and tourists and lightning that was setting fires, but 
indigenous people, the Métis, people who were moving through here and who had settled here were burning and were burning for good reason. People living here intentionally setting fires. Yes. Yes, there were people who were living here intentionally setting fires. And that seems almost antithetical now because if you were to imagine a fire in this valley today, it would be horrifying. It's a massive, massive risk for Jasper. And I can't imagine how how terrifying it must be for some people who really, who live here and, and stop to think about the risk of a fire ripping through this valley. Um, but that was one of the reasons that the Métis and different Indigenous people were lighting fires because they didn't want the trees to be able to hold such potential to burn at such a high intensity. They wanted to keep that risk low. Why is there so much pine beetle kill now in this forest? So, of course, there's a lot of people think and and are right that climate change has a lot to do with it. But then the other thing is that the trees here are densely packed and had reached the maturity level of like 80, 90 years, which is exactly the maturity level that pine beetle infest. What? Really? Yeah. Wow. I always thought it was just a climate change thing. Right. So it's not just climate change. It's also the processes of colonialism and a certain idea about nature, a certain idea about the way that a landscape should be managed and kept natural and pristine. Wow, this is definitely not part of the story of Jasper as I perceived it when I was a kid. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) I had no idea. Um, How could we... Is there a way to learn about the people who lived here in the park area before it was made into a park? I know there are many different First Nations that have ancestral ties to this place. The most fascinating resource that I've come across was an interview with a fellow named Ed Moberly, who was a Métis man, and the interview was done by a fellow named Peter J. Murphy in the 1980s, and it was just published about 10 years ago. Um, And Ed Moberly was a kid who lived here with his parents and siblings for about 10 years, 11 years, before Jasper Park was created. And so he had memories of burning and of the community getting together in the spring to burn um, until they, he and his family and all of the other Moberlies, Joe Chim family, were evicted from the park when the park was created. What? Yeah. Active eviction. Absolutely, yeah. People were... Um, There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of wrongly construed ideas about Native people that they were wasting animals, that they were hunting animals, um, that they were the reason that animal populations were low, even though there was no evidence that animal populations were low. But really it was about creating these reserves for white people, for wealthy people to come as tourists, to engage in sport hunting, 
sport hunting was really seen as the civilized way to hunt. Hunting to eat and subsist was not um, by white wealthy Canadians and by the Canadian government and by those who were writing tourism pamphlets at the time. I want a primary source on this. Can we get get a hold of this Ed Moberly interview? Absolutely. I have it with me. And <laughs> <laughs> um, their, their homestead still exists, actually. We could probably go there. There's the Moberly homestead and the Palisade Center. Um, and the Palisade Center, which people probably know, was also a homestead, and it was the homestead of the Swift family. And even though... Um, Swift married, he was a non-Indigenous man, and he married a Métis woman, um, and he was the only person who was actually allowed to stay in the valley when the park was created. Are you kidding me? No, <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> no, he was allowed to stay, and all of the Métis were forced to leave. We can go see this place? Yep. Let's do it. Would you like to go back on the path? I would love to go back on the path. Excellent. Thank you for the offer. Yes, of course. Walking through this nice wooden gate, uh, this has palisades, and this marks the Swift family homestead. Yeah, absolutely. It says registered guests only. We're not registered guests. <laughs> <laughs> We've been informed that we're allowed to hang out there. Yeah. So this used to be the Swift family homestead. I don't think any of these buildings are original homestead buildings, but this is where it was, and the Swift family. Um, they were the family that got to stay. They were the family that got to stay, yeah. So just up the road from here is the Moberly Homestead, where Ed Moberly and his family lived, and they were the family who didn't get to stay. We sat down on a picnic bench in the shade of this huge leafy tree, and Dylan had a look for Culturing Wilderness in Jasper National Park the book where he found the interview with Ed Moberly. So this is the interview that Peter Murphy did with Edward Wilson Moberly in Prairie Creek, Alberta on the 29th of August, 1980. And let's see, so Ed Moberly lived from 1901 to 1992. He was the grandson of Henry J. Moberly, a Hudson's Bay Company factor at Jasper House from 1855 to 1861. And he was eight years old when his father, John Moberly, and his family were dispossessed in 1909 after Jasper Forest Park was established and before Jasper Park came into being in 1911. So it wasn't just the Moberlys. There was the Joachim family. There was Ewan Moberly, Adolphus Moberly, 
Isadore Finley, John Moberly, William Moberly, and then Lewis Fift. So the interview talks about how Edward Moberly grew up on the homestead in Jasper um, and until his family was evicted in 1909. He ended up moving back to Jasper in 1920 and worked as a guide for over 52 years in the park. And when he retired, returned to Jasper to landscape Whistler's campground, which is one of the most popular campgrounds here in the park. So when he was a child, he described how in the spring, the first thing everybody does is burn the meadows. And families would work together to help each other contain burns. Quote, every child that is big enough to help control beyond the job. What did we have to control the fire with? A bunch of spruce boughs dipped in water. There was no other equipment to be had, but it worked. Edmore really talks about burning specific valleys like Jacques Creek, Rocky River, South S River, South S Lake, and the Snake Indian River Valley. And he also talks about how after the park was created, one of the first thing that they did was put out notices all over saying, no more fires. Hmm. And interestingly enough, he also talks about how a lot of people agreed to leave when they were evicted and asked to leave because they weren't allowed to use fire and they couldn't see how they would survive and homestead in the valley if they weren't allowed to burn. Because they knew that the forest would start creeping in? I think so. And also because like one of the reasons they would burn is they didn't want the forest to creep in and have high intensity fires, but there was also a lot of like very immediate uses of burning. Mm. One of the biggest things is just that burning created habitat for many different mammals, far more than the conifer choked valleys can sustain today. Um, the, for grizzly bears, the critical buffalo berry, the more buffalo berry, the more grizzly habitat, the more grizzly habitat, the more grizzlies that can be sustained. Um, a really interesting thing that came up in the interview that I had not expected at all was when Edward Moberly talks about how fire not only provided food for game animals, but also kept them safe from insects. So in almost like a similar way as to how burning would have kept trees down and prevented pine beetle. Um, quoting Moberly now, I remember a time when the moose get the ticks. Where did they come from? Because there was no more fire and they suffer. Sometimes they can't get up no more. You see that. All the blood is sucked away and they get very weak and they die. This didn't exist when the burning had been done. Huh, I'd never thought of that relationship. Yeah, I had never, neither had I, that the burning would clean out the land of ticks. Huh. So I'll just read a little passage here about him talking about the wind. Quote, You must watch the wind, always. If it's very quiet, you can burn, but not too much, not too big. In case a wind will come in the middle of the burn, then you might get in trouble. Always watch that wind. Number one, what we watch in burning, hunting, wind. The people of the land here, that lived here, may not study much of anything, but that is one thing they have to know. Hmm. Later he says, mind you, I have worked in guiding many people. I have not run across one yet that know anything about the wind. I've seen many times a fowl up made hunting because people ignored the wind. Huh. So this is just a great question. I'm just going to drop this. <laughs> You can decide if you want to use it, but this kind of relates to like how all of this is is a question now, and um, 
how this complicates our idea of wilderness. This is a fellow named Ian McLaren, who's written quite a bit about Jasper, and he asks, what concept of wilderness must be entertained to make sense of a river valley in a national park that excludes an Aboriginal presence, but is managed by policies that include prescribed burning of vegetation, and which includes a town site, outlying motels, inns and cabins, recreational development, a horse paddock, highway and other paved roads, railway, airstrip, training centre, power station, sewage treatment plant, fibre optic cables, and twin pipeline with attendant pumping stations. What concept of wilderness must be entertained to make sense of all of that? Hmm. He asks. Huh. Here's Ed Moberly. He's posing, he's probably with a tour group. He worked as a hunting guide for a lot of people doing sport hunting. Whoa, he's 25 in that picture? Yeah, he looks older, hey? Yeah. And there he is during the interview. Older glasses, wearing a nice zip-up cardigan. Yeah, sometimes I think about that way of life. I probably don't miss it, but once you went through it, it's not easy to forget. Though it's tough. But I guess we didn't know nothing else but to face the hard problems. Had to make it. What I love about seeing this is just... Just having at least one person to grab onto to know who was here before this place was a park. Just a name. So, we've learned about what Jasper used to look like a hundred years ago from these photographs, we've learned that there are a lot more trees now and a lot more conifers than there were before. Um, we've learned that people living here had a lot to do with why this land was cleared much more before and, and that those people were actively evicted to make it into a national park. Um, so, I don't know, what do we think? Uh, when we talk about Jasper as a wild place, uh, is it useful to think of it as a wild place? For me, the idea of the wild and the idea of wilderness in many ways has been maybe not completely thrown out the window, but I'm always going to be so cautious of what it means and how it's been used. And we can't step away from the hundred plus years that it's been used to advertise these places and that it's tied to these places. Um, perhaps there's some way to rehabilitate or reclaim the idea of the wild Maybe in thinking about human-inclusive wild as that which isn't controlled, that which is autonomous and unmanaged. Um, global climates and global tourists alongside grizzly bears and forests that do unexpected things. I, we were talking earlier too, perhaps thinking about just Things that are not domesticated, things that are able to make their own plans. Yeah, I, I come away from this wanting to reimagine wilderness not as a place without people, but as a place where 
non-human species also have room to make their own plans. Mm. Yeah, and all of this talk about the parks and the history of Canada and these places and in many ways the really troubling history that I don't feel like celebrating, it doesn't mean that I don't believe in the purpose of the parks and I don't think the parks are a good thing. I think that preventing the interests of capital from just exploiting to maximize profit is a really good idea. I think that especially in the world that we live in where the vast majority of different wilderness preserves or nature preserves are quite small and quite fragmented, um, the combined area of Banff, Jasper, Yoho and Kootenai is over 20,000 square kilometers and that's really incredible. But I also think that even <laughs> dialing back from my desire for all of this land to return to indigenous jurisdiction and <laughs> to have Canada step back in, in controlling it, um, even if you were to look at like Jasper's goals from their state of the park report, they talk about their goals with indigenous people and where things are at, at least with Jasper. So taking that as something that's coming from Canada. Um, partnerships, accessibility, and mutual respect are reported as fair. Well, incorporation of traditional knowledge, language, and the creation of economic opportunities for communities is rated as poor, and nothing is rated as good. Yikes. And that's coming from the park's website, so I think there's probably people who might give you an even more dire <laughs> take on it. Um, but drawn from that, it says that Indigenous partners would like to see earlier consultation on projects, more collaboration in park operations, and more Indigenous staff. Partners suggest that Parks Canada should recognize and apologize for removing Indigenous peoples from what is now Jasper National Park. And they would like to see more use of Indigenous languages and more economic opportunities for Indigenous people within the park. All of which sound very reasonable and none of which have been implemented. When people think about these places, I want them to remember that they're older than Canada. We talk about these places and often have Jasper advertised to us or we're told or we think of it as, as wilderness and we also think of it as Canadian wilderness and Canada isn't that old and these places and the humans who've lived here, humans have lived here much longer than Canada has and the claim to these places and to the wilderness of these places as Canadian I want people to, to think about that and to question that. I want people who really care about these places and want to protect them to question that. I think Banff and Jasper combined have over five and a half million visitors a year. And Jasper in particular is in a really dangerous situation where the pine beetles come through, there's trees all around, and the possibility of a high intensity fire through here is not a minor possibility. It's definitely something that's quite scary and in many ways this has come to be not just because of distant fossil fuels being burnt but because Canada 
claimed these places and stole these lands and dispossessed the people who were living here already. And those are things that we need to talk about. And maybe remembering that deeper history might actually make this a place that is healthier and wilder. Yeah, absolutely. Healthier for the humans and animals and plants and mushrooms that live here. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. This episode of Let's Find Out was produced by Dylan Hall and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. And you can also find them on letsfindoutpodcast.com. Hope to see you at our season wrap-up live show on December 1st, How We Make Nature. Tickets on our website. Thanks to Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board for their support. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by a man whose melodies will always bring you safely out of the woods, Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.